Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. I'm John Pimble, the co-producer of Iowa Public Radio's podcast, Caucusland. This podcast debuted in 2019 with host Clay Masters, and now it's returned for another season. We want you to subscribe, rate, and then share this podcast with others. You can hear the four episodes of Caucusland right now at iowapublicradio.org or with your preferred podcast listening program. In this hour, we're sharing with you the first two episodes of Caucusland. Now, I'm very proud to have co-produced this podcast with Clay Masters. And as you hear this, I hope you will explore more of what Iowa Public Radio is doing in the podcast realm. And now, let's start with this preview of Caucusland with the first episode in this new season. It's titled, Losing First in the Nation. The evening of the 2020 Iowa caucuses played out like a nightmare. All of it coming after a caucus night that for Democrats produced anger and embarrassment. I've never seen anything like it. We were only a month away from everything shutting down in the face of a global pandemic. On February 3rd, 2020, I was in one of the fastest growing cities in the country. It's a town called Ankeny. That's a suburb just north of Des Moines. Well, first of all, welcome uh, to Caucus Night. It was the culmination of months of Democrats campaigning here with millions of dollars spent. This precinct caucus here is just one of hundreds that were happening across the state in places like school gyms and church basements. I'm standing in the corner of this ballroom at the Marriott in Ankeny. There are 426 people here that are caucusing. Uh, the, first... the term social distancing didn't really exist, and this place is packed. When I tap you, put your hand down. Caucuses are not like a primary election where you just show up and check a box. Democrats have to move around the room and show support for different candidates. You might come in wanting to support a certain person, but if they don't meet a 15% threshold, you have to choose a different politician. This is confusing, right? This was the first Democratic caucus I had covered, having seen a Republican one in 2016. There's a lot of action at this precinct, and everything went well. After it was over, I'll never forget it, I went to a Burger King to get one of those vegan hamburgers I'd seen Senator Cory Booker inhale a couple of between campaign stops. Remember, he was running for a time. It seemed like a fitting meal to end my caucus coverage. Well, it looks like it's going to be a long night, but I'm feeling good. Or so I thought it was the end of my caucus coverage. You probably heard we don't know the result. I'm sitting in my old Honda CRV eating when an NPR editor texted me asking, what the hell is going on with the results in Iowa? It is too close to call. Results were supposed to start rolling in that evening. There was this smartphone app the Democratic National Committee had the state party use meant to streamline the process, but it hadn't been tested. And the phone lines meant to be a backup to record the results were jammed. Remember, the race was still very crowded then, and the candidates were holding rallies across Des Moines ready to drop balloons and claim momentum. I imagine at some point the results will be announced. We know by the time it's all said and done, Iowa, you have shocked the nation. In the middle of the night, the Iowa Democratic Party chair at the time, Troy Price, holds a press call. He reads a statement. We have said all along, we have these backups in place for exactly this reason. We are updating campaigns, and we will continue to provide updates as they are available. He hangs up. Campaigns were pretty pissed off, to say the least. 
Meanwhile, I went home to take a nap. There was still nothing when I woke up. All right, so it's 3.43 in the morning right now. Uh, I just got a call from Morning Edition, which is broadcasting live nationally from a coffee house. We are here broadcasting live at Smoky Row Coffee House in Des Moines, Iowa. There they are. This was when Rachel Martin and David Green were still hosts of NPR's Morning Edition. They were already asking how much this might hurt Iowa. You always hear these questions every four years, like, should Iowa really be first? Does it really reflect the country? Um, Is Iowa at risk for for not being seen as first in the nation anymore and for people thinking this is a bad idea? I don't see how it isn't after this. I mean, this was uh, dumping a lot of gasoline on already a smoldering fire here. And now we've seen that fire burning for the last three years. Iowa has staked its place in political history with its caucuses, but national Democrats are done with it. Republicans are still coming to Iowa in the run-up to 2024, but this race, it's not like anything we've seen. The Iowa caucuses have led the presidential nominating process for the last half century. So as I stand here tonight, breathing a big sigh of relief, thank you, Iowa. Caucuses are not a primary election. They're run by the state Republican and Democratic parties. Caucuses are baked into the state's DNA. And so is the criticism from the rest of the country. They're arcane, confusing, inconclusive. If you don't live here, the outsized role Iowa plays in presidential politics is probably one of the only things you really know about the state. If you're not paying close attention, you might think of Iowa as a purple state. Well, it kind of was. It's not anymore. Since I've moved to Iowa, I don't think the candidates that I vote for have won in any of the elections. It's been on a march to the right for over the last decade. The Republican and Democratic National Committees can choose their own calendars for which state goes first, but they've been in agreement for the last 50 years that Iowa is number one. Those days are gone. We're stuck in a spot now where Iowa will continue to be important on the Republican side. There's still a primary race taking place in the run-up to the 2024 Iowa caucuses. But a former president indicted for conspiring to overturn the 2020 election is seeking the nomination again. And he's the front-runner. These are unprecedented times for the country. In this season of caucus land, we're looking into why Iowa's politics have changed so much in recent years and why the Democrats are bailing on the state. Come along with us as we examine how important Iowa is in 2024 and how voters here may affect the outcome of the race. I'm Clay Masters from Iowa Public Radio News in collaboration with NPR's Midwest Newsroom. We're returning to caucus land. Check one, two, check, check. All right, so Mr. Buttigieg, I'm just curious, first of all... To this day, the Associated Press has not named a winner of Iowa's 2020 Democratic caucuses. And don't ever expect them to. But when you look at the history books, it will show this guy, Pete Buttigieg, as the winner. Have you felt like an underdog going into today still? Well, we're definitely keeping the underdog mentality all the way through caucus night, but uh, it's... I talked to him the morning of the Iowa caucuses at his hotel in Des Moines. I can remember coming and seeing you in a house up in Johnston, Iowa in February a year ago. There's about six people in there. There was more press in the room than there were uh, people there to see you. Do you... Buttigieg had gone from an unknown mayor in Indiana to the surging star of the Iowa campaign trail in just a year. It's the Iowa story, right? From Jimmy Carter to Barack Obama, you could come to Iowa and make a name for yourself. I mean, repeating that story almost loses meaning. I've heard it so many times. It's also really compelling to have one or 200 in a county that uh, maybe has a few thousand people population total, uh, voted for President Obama and then for Trump, and is looking for somebody who can deliver a message of how they fit in the future. 
Early in his time in politics, Buttigieg showed skepticism about Iowa starting things off. So I asked if his opinion changed. It takes the presidential campaign out of this kind of abstract, uh, over-the-air territory. And by the way, also out of the territory where money might make the biggest difference. And into people's living rooms, into people's backyards and, and middle school gyms. And when people have a chance to kick the tires on your idea face-to-face uh, -face with you, uh, to really look at you eye-to-eye and, and, and get a sense of who you are, not just uh, what, what your brand is or your images or your talking points are, that does something. Uh, it, it does something to you and it, it makes you a better candidate. When I listen back to this interview, I realize he pivots to the concerns that I would become very familiar with in the years ahead. I still have concerns about making sure that we have a process that is inclusive, uh, that is diverse. I think it's why the role of not just states like Iowa and New Hampshire, but South Carolina and Nevada are so important. I think we need to constantly be looking at how to make sure this is the most inclusive process uh, possible, especially as we uh, look to build a politics that invites everybody in. I want to be clear about something. I've talked to a lot of Iowa voters over the years from both major parties that don't like caucuses. Many express frustration that they just can't simply vote in a primary. Critics across the country also say the process just leaves too many people out. You have to show up on a cold winter night at a set time instead of just voting at your convenience in a primary. Again, I want to stress this. These are not a primary election. Democrats and Republicans have historically done them differently. And for the last 50 years, Democrats get together at a set time in community gathering spaces. People have to physically move around the room to show their support for different candidates. Then there's this confusing caucus math you may have heard of. For example, in 2020, Buttigieg received the most state delegate equivalents. But then you had Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders winning the popular vote, meaning more people showed up supporting Sanders, but had to choose somebody else when he was no longer viable. See? It's confusing. There's a lot of important party leaders in the DNC who don't like caucuses. The former head of the DNC, Tom Perez, hated caucuses. That's Scott Brennan. He chaired the Iowa Democratic Party a couple of times. And so I knew going into 2022 that, that it was going to be an uphill battle the whole way. You'd be hard-pressed to find a Democrat in Iowa who fights harder for the caucuses than this guy. He also serves on the DNC's Rules and Bylaws Committee. This is a committee within a committee tasked with setting the calendar of early states. Remember, the parties choose these calendars separately, and Brennan often reminds his fellow members their calendar works in getting a Democrat elected. Joe Biden didn't win Iowa. He got pummeled in New Hampshire, didn't do particularly well in Nevada, and he won South Carolina and became the nominee. That's how the process should work. You know, sometimes you get a Barack Obama who comes out of Iowa and that carries him on. But if you recall, even in 08, Barack Obama won Iowa and then Hillary Clinton won New Hampshire. And so the process works. And why would you change it? There's this whole history of Democrats fighting over the calendar. I'll spare you the details. Just know the Cliffs notes of it. The fight has to do with Iowa having a state law saying it must hold the first caucus and New Hampshire having one that says they must hold the first primary. But after the dumpster fire that was the 2020 Iowa caucuses, this committee within a committee is hell-bent on changing the calendar up. Ladies and gentlemen, if you can look in your goodie bags a little later. That's Mignon Moore, one of the co-chairs of the Rules and Bylaws Committee. It's June 2022. States are auditioning before them in Washington, D.C. Moore is trying to get the members to stop looking at their gifts from New Hampshire. You can see they get very excited about trinkets. <laughs> Delegations from 16 states in Puerto Rico are making their case to try and win them over. 
That includes the traditional early window states. Those are Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, and South Carolina. In the Midwest, there's newcomers Michigan, Minnesota, and Illinois. Maryland, New Jersey, Connecticut, and Delaware also make the case. So do Colorado, Georgia, Texas, Oklahoma, and Washington State. Out of all those states, Iowa has the most to lose. Are they ready? The Iowa delegation includes Scott Brennan, who we've met, as well as Ross Wilburn, the Iowa Democratic Party chair at this time. And Iowa House Minority Leader Jennifer Confirst is there, too. This feels like a polite congressional hearing. States will have 15 minutes to present, followed by 20 minutes of questions from the members. The committee had met for months, saying they wanted the early window to favor primaries over caucuses. They don't want to rely on tradition. They want states that will be competitive in a general election and states with more diverse populations leading the pack. So there's a lot going against Iowa. While Iowa doesn't have any goodie bags, they're bringing their own kind of gift, an admission it's time to change the caucuses. Now, we recognize that the caucuses, have they been conducted since the 1970s, are no longer aligned with a vibrant and just 21st century democracy. Here's the party chair at the time, Ross Wilburn. In order to continue growing our party, We need to make changes. And although caucuses are mandated by state law, our state law, the statute is not explicitly prescriptive about how they're conducted or administered. He goes on to say the Iowa Democratic Party will start letting caucus goers mail in their presidential preferences. You heard that right. That will fundamentally change the way Iowa Democrats hold their caucuses. Under their proposal, there's still an in-person gathering on a cold winter's night, but those attending are only going to talk about party business. Caucus participants will just mail in who they think should be the nominee. Sounds like mail-in voting, right? Well, there are a lot of raised eyebrows around the table. And then Wilburn also tries to address the diversity component. One way to look at Iowa's urban diversity is to examine the demographics of its larger public school districts, uh, which paint a picture reflective of their communities. When taken individually, these districts uh, look a great deal more like America as a whole and reflect the future of Iowa. He also points to the growing diversity in many of Iowa's rural small towns. Iowa's latest census data shows the state's diversity rate steadily increasing in the last 10 years. But the data also shows Iowa as a whole is 89.8% white. Now it's time to sell the notion that Iowa is still competitive. That goes to House Minority Leader Jennifer Confirst. What I hear a lot is that maybe Iowans, Iowa Democrats are in the desert. And I keep saying, well, if that's true, I can still see the water because it's right there. 2018 is when we picked up six seats in the Iowa House. It's not that far away. And the Democratic Party is still organized, inspired, and enthused. As time winds down, Brendan reiterates the point he's made so many times. Starting this process in Iowa has resulted in our Democratic nominee winning the popular vote in the last four presidential elections. Why would we mess with success? And with that, I believe our time is up and we take questions. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. And thank you so much for ending on time because I would hate to have to say, my friend, your time is up. (laughs) Obviously, there's a lot of questions from the DNC members about how a mail-in caucus will work. Does New Hampshire believe that just because you say it's a caucus, it is a caucus? (laughs) Because if it looks like a primary, traditionally, the state of New Hampshire has said, no, 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 you can't go first. Scott Brennan responds to committee member Elaine Kmark. We are focused on complying with our state law, which mandates that we are a caucus, and we believe that what we have proposed meets the requirements of Iowa Code Section 43.4. 
I would just be curious to know about the the percentage of your your diverse community that actually participates in these caucuses and what that's going to look like as you're transitioning to whatever your final product is going to be because those are the people that usually fall through the cracks. That's Yvette Lewis. Iowa's Jennifer Confirst tries to address her concern. It's our expectation that by expanding access to the caucuses, that will increase the diversity of people who can participate since those are often the ones who are not reflected in the current process. It's part of our attempt to increase diversity. After the presentation, I grabbed committee member Moa Lathy, one of the biggest critics of Iowa staying in the early window, and I asked him what he thinks. So I give them a lot of um, a lot of credit for rethinking it, reimagining it, and coming up with a system that is different. Having said that, whenever there is something new, right, the devil's in the details, and it raises a lot of questions about the execution and what it really looks like and all the details. And I think the line of questioning today from some of my colleagues on the committee reflects that. All of the other states are making their best case about why they should go first, and none of them, not a one of them, mention Iowa. During the Iowa Democrats' press conference, I point out to them the other early states are not trying to band together. I mean, you guys were talking about the four early states are representative of the country. New Hampshire and Nevada weren't saying that yesterday. Do you guys kind of feel like you've <laughs> been left behind? Um, it's their constitutional right to be wrong, right? Uh, and everybody's going to put their best foot forward. We are reminding folks, uh, we're not just talking about tradition for tradition's sake. We are talking about effectiveness. And the four early states with Iowa have been uh, a great barometer for how the country feels and has been effective at getting candidates elected for president and that trickling down to other offices. But at the end of the day, Iowa was alone. The committee decides to hold off on making a decision until after the midterm election. But that midterm, it's not going to be so great for Democrats in Iowa. I'm Clay Masters, and this is Caucus Land. Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. Support for IPR comes from the Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about the Healing Room at upstreamfm.com. Across the country, Democrats are pleasantly surprised by the 2022 midterm results. The red wave many anticipated doesn't splash ashore. But that's not the case here in Iowa. Aren't you glad you live in the freedom-loving state of Iowa? Governor Kim Reynolds and Senator Chuck Grassley win re-election by double digits. The state's Democratic attorney general and treasurer, who both held their seats for decades, lose. Even the lone Democrat in the U.S. House is defeated, and the state Senate gains a supermajority. There goes that whole competitive argument. A month later, President Joe Biden writes a letter to the DNC. This seals the deal many saw coming. Biden wants Iowa gone from the top spot. South Carolina would go first, and then Nevada and New Hampshire would go closely after South Carolina, and then we would have Michigan and Georgia. 
That's Drake University political science professor Rachel Payne Caulfield. She has over two decades of experience covering and working with campaigns from both parties during the caucuses. For observers of this process, one of the frustrations of it is that the criteria have been unclear, the process has been unclear, and the decision-making has been unclear. Different states interpreted it those criteria differently, then appeared to do absolutely nothing with the information for several months until Joe Biden stepped in and said, here's the plan that I would like. Remember, in the 2020 Iowa caucuses, Biden came in fourth and the New Hampshire fifth. It's not till South Carolina his campaign takes off. In this letter, the president also encourages the reordering process to be revisited every four years. Every four years. Payne Caulfield argues Iowa has a long track record of underdogs coming into the state and making a name for themselves. 20 people in the room, he walked across campus, nobody even knew who he was. Like in 2015, when Bernie Sanders gave Hillary Clinton a run for her money. He built that campaign, and over the course of the caucus cycle, you could see his campaigns grow, energy, enthusiasm, excitement. Uh, And that's the sort of thing, right, that pushes back against the establishment wing of the party that holds establishment politicians to account within their own party. And that's a really important function of the nominating process. And, you know... I don't think that happens in the same way in large, media-heavy, expensive states. Now it's February 2023. The full Democratic National Committee is meeting, and one of their agenda items is to remove Iowa from its coveted top spot. You know, folks, I continue to be impressed by the level of commitment and the thoughtfulness that we've seen from this committee throughout this process. DNC Chair Jamie Harrison. The Democratic Party looks like America. And so does this proposal. As a South Carolinian, I'm, of course, grateful that President Biden and the Rules and Bylaws Committee chose South Carolina. He speaks with pride when he talks about South Carolina going first. Think about this. 40% of enslaved people came to this country. And they came through the Port of Charleston. There's a statistic that 90% of African Americans in this nation can trace one ancestor back to South Carolina. After Harrison speaks, he opens it up to the other DNC members. Scott Brennan from Iowa takes the mic. We can approve this calendar, but we will leave here with absolutely nothing settled. I say this not to attempt to bluster or imply any threat, but simply to acknowledge the facts. In 2007, the matter of the contest dates and order was not settled until the 11th hour. There is a limited amount of calendar real estate, conflicting state laws, and a GOP calendar that no longer bears any resemblance to ours. Ray Buckley from New Hampshire has harsher words. Under the plan, they'll have to share a primary day with Nevada. We are a battleground state where every election is close. New Hampshire Democrats say they're going first no matter what. The RBC knows full well that New Hampshire Democrats could not possibly unilaterally change state laws. They knew that the Republican leaders in the state would not bend their will. Most on the DNC want change. Here's a reality. No one state should have a lock on going first. Now we have a process that says everybody gets opportunity to have their voice heard in this process. If we're really a family, it means that some folk got to shift to make room at the table for others. We cannot say 
that black voters and Latino voters are important and matter and make us wait. We will move to a vote on the motion to approve the report of the Rules and Bylaws Committee. All those in favor of approving the report say aye. aye. All opposed, nay. The ayes have it, and the report on the Rules and Bylaws Committee has been adopted. And just like that, the Democratic National Committee votes to move Iowa much farther down the line of states. Joe Biden just pretty much crafted his ideal process to become the nominee again. Here's Drake University's Rachel Payne Caulfield. And you have to wonder if every year, right, the the mix of people who make suggestions are going to get to set up a system that favors them. Six months later, October 2023, Iowa Democrats are settling on a compromise with the DNC. They're going to hold their caucuses on the same day as Republicans, which is January 15th. But they will only hold the party business portion of the caucuses, not the part where they pick favorites for president. So people can still gather and discuss what they want the Iowa Democratic Party platform to include. But the caucuses as we know them for the Democrats, the thing Americans watched for decades, is over as we know it. Instead, they'll allow Iowa Democrats to mail in their presidential preference cards. They must be postmarked by March 5th, that's Super Tuesday, and that's when they'll release the results. Rita Hart is now the chair of the Iowa Democratic Party, and she says in four years, they're going to try again for an early spot. We're pleased that we've gotten these reassurances from the DNC that the process will be open for 2028 when it really matters to us, right? We are concentrated now here in Iowa on re-electing President Biden and on getting more Democrats elected across the state. At the same time, the DNC has deemed New Hampshire not compliant because they're not agreeing to move their primary from the front of the pack. And Republicans who control elections in Georgia say they're not going early. All of this leaves the National Democrats' calendar unsettled. But as far as Iowa is concerned, that fire that started burning after 2020 is now just embers. Iowa will no longer be number one. I'm driving through a small northeast Iowa town. It's October, right before the 2022 midterm. It's a beautiful fall Friday evening. This part of Iowa, right next to the Mississippi River, it's such a pretty place to be this time of year. As I pass through the main street of McGregor, I see about a dozen protesters holding abortion rights signs. You usually don't see this in a small town, so I turn the car around, get out, and approach them. Aaron Cubbin says since Roe v. Wade was overturned in June, they're here most Friday nights with signs in hand. A lot of, you know, thumbs ups, a lot of honking of horns, but we definitely get the middle finger several times, you know, every time we come out. Their signs say abortion saves lives, regulate dick, not Jane. And women vote like your life depends on it, because it does. In July, one of the protesters was assaulted by a man who was anti-abortion. Police said the group was lawfully demonstrating when that unprovoked assault occurred. And Cubbin tells me being here every week demonstrating is important. You know, that's that's what we're here for, too. We want people to know that Iowa is not a monolith and it's not just the cities where people feel, you know, this way. It's rural Iowa, too, and it's important for, for people to see protests in small towns. She moved to Iowa about a decade ago, and like many Democrats and independents in the state that I've talked with, she can't believe how much the state has changed. Since I've moved to Iowa, I don't think my the candidates that I vote for have won in, in any of the elections I voted in, and I've voted in all of them. It's hard to tell if that was a friendly honk or an angry honk. I think most of the honks are friendly. 
Iowa's voting record has changed dramatically over the last decade, thanks in part to a populist message that flipped rural counties. It can be hard to believe how different Iowa looked just a little over 10 years ago. It is good to be back in Cedar Rapids. I had just moved to Iowa to cover politics. The 2012 caucuses were over, and I was immediately thrown into covering the ground game of both President Obama and Mitt Romney's campaigns. A prairie fire of debt is sweeping across Iowa and across the nation. They were battling over this state. We will win Iowa again. We will win this election again. It's exciting. Thank you, Iowa. What a welcome. Thank you. It seems like they were here constantly. Keep in mind, Iowa has a measly six electoral votes, and they were neck and neck in the polls. There's an election for U.S. president today. Would you vote for Mitt Romney or Barack Obama? Mitt Romney. The night before the general election, Obama holds this massive rally in downtown Des Moines where he credits the state for his 2008 victory. This is where our movement for change began. Obama wins Iowa in 2012, and the state is one of the few to elect a legislature with split control. Iowa can do things different than the way they do things in Washington, D.C. In two days, can you believe this? Then comes Donald Trump. We are going to win the great state of Iowa. The projected winner in the Hawkeye state. Special place, special people, thank you. We are watching um, the map change in this country. And Iowa? only marched farther to the right these last eight years. These last two election cycles have been so deeply red. We bucked the national trend and we had a great big old red wave. In this episode, we're taking a look at why the state made such a hard pivot in 2016 and what are the factors altering Iowa's politics for 2024. From Iowa Public Radio in collaboration with NPR's Midwest Newsroom, this is Caucus Land. I'm Clay Masters. Support for IPR comes from The Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about The Healing Room at upstreamfm.com. Let's think back to January of 2016. And I say to my friends, because I'm here a lot, and I'm going to be here so much, you're going to be so sick of me. Don't get so tired that you refuse to go to caucus. Don't do that. Then-candidate Donald Trump is neck and neck with Texas Senator Ted Cruz in Iowa. You know, they see you're in number one in every single place except Iowa where I'm tied. And you're going to change that on February 1st. You're going to change. Everywhere else. Everywhere else I'm number one. This is a campaign stop at the Bridgeview Center in Ottumwa, which is in Wapalo County. It's one of the many that flipped from Obama to Trump. His speeches always hit on the same themes— build a wall along the southern border. Mexico's going to pay for the wall because they make a fortune. He says other foreign leaders are smarter than American politicians. I'm so tired of these weak, disgusting, corrupt politicians that we have running our country. That's what it is. They're corrupt. To many in the audience, it seems off the cuff. I'd love to read a speech. It would be so easy. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for being here. I love Iowa very much. It's great. Ba, 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 right? We don't do that. We speak from the heart and we speak from the brain. You know, I've, I'm fortunate. I keep hearing variations of the same thing in regards to Trump ahead of this 2016 caucus. Here's Kim Johnson. I like that he's not a politician, <laughs> that he's real like the rest of us. He's not just making empty promises, it sounds like. so. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting for me to hear people say he's like us. And, you know, I don't have that kind of money, right? Well, I mean, he's got a lot more money, but... 
he doesn't, like the politicians, I just don't believe anything that comes out of their mouths. A lot of the people here have never caucused before, but this time some tell me they plan to show up and back Trump, like Jordan Mockentine and Jacob Edmondson. Tells it like it is. Yeah. And he doesn't need dollars to back him. He's, you know, shoots, shoots from the hip and you know, he's, he's not going to get bought now. Yeah, talks like any one of us up there, you know, from the heart and from, you know, like his head, like he said. Michelle James says she votes in general elections, but she hasn't caucused. This time, she plans to show up for Trump. Tells it like it is. He does some pussyfoot around. He is not afraid to be not PC. Well, the border issues. Mike Short likes him. Getting America back on track, you know, by jobs and stuff and importing all these uh, factories and stuff that are going to Mexico and other places. Bring them back here and all that money. These are the kinds of things I hear at the dozen or so Trump rallies in the run-up to the 2016 caucuses. One thing with me, hey, I'm leaving here, I'm going to another place, we're going to do the same thing all over again, okay? Three weeks after this Ottumwa speech, Trump comes in second in the Iowa caucuses. Ted Cruz wins. Unlike Trump, Cruz played the more traditional Iowa ground game of barnstorming the state, hitting all 99 counties. But when the November 2016 election comes around, Trump flips this state that had voted twice for Barack Obama. The fact that two distinctly different political ideologies captivated the same voter base is talked about a lot. So obviously Iowa is a pretty white state. Megan Goldberg is a political science professor at Cornell College. That's a small liberal arts school in Mount Vernon, just outside Cedar Rapids. There's this this phenomenon of Trump and the way he sort of talked about things was really an appeal to white identity in a lot of ways. And a lot of those white identity appeals also really, really coincide with rural identity appeals. And that it's not a surprise to probably anyone listening that people who are in more rural areas feel left behind. They feel looked down upon. They feel ignored. Goldberg sees a dynamic with blue-collar workers and unions that goes back further to the rise of the Tea Party movement. But she says it's hard to talk about this shift without bringing up race. I have family members who have talked about how Obama made race so much worse. And I think what they mean by that is that having a black president challenged the racial hierarchy in this country in a way that was very pervasive. And Trump sort of offered this model of, like, let's correct it and take it back. Um, let's go, when we when we make America great again, right, we're sort of like restoring this like racial hierarchy. And I think in Iowa that, that plays really well, especially because it also, I think, meshes with like this rural identity that a lot of Iowans have, especially Republican rural Iowans. That's the thing. Iowa is very rural. There are a few pockets of densely populated metros, think Des Moines, Cedar Rapids, or the Quad Cities, but most of Iowa's population is spread out. Now we've seen four years of a Trump presidency, followed by his effort to overthrow the 2020 election, and nearly three years of him running for the nomination again. And he's back in Iowa. Walking towards the building at the Jackson County Fairgrounds in Maquoketa, there's a line uh, that's starting to wrap around the building, still quite a few hours before the former president is scheduled to speak. It's September 2023. I'm in another one of these counties that went from Obama to Trump. How long you guys been waiting? I ask Cindy Dierks why she's here. He's our rightful president. He's our what? He's our rightful president. The election was rigged. And uh, we need him. Joe Biden won the 2020 election with 306 electoral college votes to Trump's 232. 
He also won the popular vote by more than 7 million ballots. Trump claims the election was rigged, but judges have dismissed case after case of his legal challenges. As Trump runs again, his backers like Cindy Dierick say a lot of the same things people said about him eight years ago. He's not a politician. He's not DC Swamp. He, uh, he suffers the pain like we suffer the pain. Um, and uh, we want him back. This small business owner says she actually backed Rand Paul in 2016. And I came to the conclusion that Trump is one of us, and he loves America. I love watching him put his hand on his heart and sing the national anthem. You don't see that way. I've never seen that with any other president. And uh, I know he loves America. I know he loves us. Um, We love him right back. In 2016, Jessica Lane was for Ted Cruz, but this time around, she's all in for Trump. To deal with our borders is important, but it's also, the fact is, is our infrastructure. That is the main things the federal government is supposed to be. Otherwise, the states need to run their own. And that's why I was a big supporter of Ted Cruz. Now, after that, um, like like she was saying, watching Trump, um, he is one of those guys. Does he have an ego? Absolutely. But that's also what I like about him because he's not going to let America fail and us look bad. Inside the Pearson Center on the Jackson County Fairgrounds, Arnold Kundal tells me he caucused for Trump in 2016. Trump, I had really just went on a whim. I really didn't have him as a serious contender. It was just, what the heck, you know? (laughs) But he he talks to us. He's exactly who, who we want. The retired farmer is sitting with his wife, Mary, a retired teacher. They like Trump's messages. You know, um, I think Trump worked really hard at closing our gates, too, as far as the immigration issue. I think that's a huge issue. And the fact that, um, you know, that we've got all these open borders now, it's troubling that that our government is putting all of this money into these illegal, and I'm going to call them illegal aliens. We're trying to save Ukraine from Russia, and I don't think... That shouldn't be any of our concerns. Our, our people in the United States should be our concerns. Arnold says he's done with politics if Trump doesn't get back in the White House. If it doesn't happen this time, I, uh, I, I'm done voting. I'm just, you, you guys can have your government. You can have whatever you want. I'm 65. I'm retired now. And, and uh, I can't make much of an effect from here on out, you know. Thank you all very much. So remember that. Get out and caucus and have a good time. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. It's important to note in 2020, the Republican National Committee did not produce a new platform. Instead, they renewed what delegates enacted in 2016. Here's Megan Goldberg from Cornell College. Notably in 2020, the RNC didn't create their own platform. They just said that we formally adopt Trump's America first, which is also much less specific. I used to have students compare party platforms, and I I really, I almost can't do the same exercise in 2020 because they're so different. And trying to sort of answer the same questions with both platforms is impossible. Now you have the former president running in a race where the platform basically pledges its allegiance to him. This is uncharted territory. And there's research explaining why Iowa's politics are changing so drastically. From Iowa Public Radio, this is Caucus Land. I'm Clay Masters.
Iowa politics aren't what they used to be. That Trump win in 2016, it got the attention of several researchers. Just this idea that that Iowa, which you know had long occupied that position as sort of a moderate or a moder- moderating political culture, um, just seemed to be polarizing very rapidly. This is Dan Creer. He's an Iowa State University sociology professor. Along with his peers, Abdi Kuso and Ann Oberhauser, they studied county-level data from the U.S. Census Bureau and the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Their study measured things like economic status, geographical context, and social identity, and how it affects voting. Here's researcher Ann Oberhauser. So we, we sat down and looked at the data following the 2016 election by county and kind of bringing a sociological lens to it, wanted to break down some of the categories and try to explain through social identities, social factors, economic factors, and then looking at rurality and kind of rural issues that came up as part of the explanation. Their research shows rural white voters without a college education were influential in the massive countywide shift to Republican. Career says the results surprised him. The hypothesis that I had in mind that when we would look at the data that some change in like, um, you know, economic well-being would be the driver of the vote. And what we found was that it didn't matter, that it was really social identities and rurality were really what was driving the vote when we analyzed the data. Career and Oberhauser decided to take their research further. We wanted to really find out and go out and talk to people. So that's what sociologists, qualitative researchers do is, you know, talk to people and see what helps to explain some of these shifts. They made connections with leaders in the community in four different counties that went from Obama to Trump. In the West, they chose Buena Vista and Clay counties. In the East, it was Clayton and Howard. The research shows many of the narratives shared by these residents were embedded in the tide of agrarian populism that came to the Midwest in the late 19th century. To get us on the same page, Creer defines what we're talking about. Populism is essentially like a political ideology and uh, political action, political mobilization that makes an appeal to essentially an aggrieved subaltern group. So instead of appealing to elites, as um, elites are generally identified as something on the order of persecutors or perpetrators, a populist candidate makes an appeal to the people. So it's usually always a nationalistic appeal. You, the people, are being damaged and victimized by some elite. Oftentimes, you know, these leaders actually are elites, the ones who are, um, you know, sounding those calls. And And there's a kind of an anti-immigrant sentiment um, that's manifest in this as well. You can hear this kind of rhetoric in Trump's speeches in 2023. 2024 is our final battle. With you at my side, we will demolish the deep state. We will expel the warmongers from our government. They want to go to war with everybody. We will drive out the globalists, we will cast out the communists, Marxists, and fascists, and we will throw off the sick political class that truly hates our country. We will rout the fake news media, we will defeat crooked Joe Biden, and we will end illegal immigration once and for all, just as we had it three years ago. To study this populist message, Creer and Oberhauser met with these rural groups throughout 2019. Most of the um, 
respondents gathered around the focus group table, you know, had some kind of official position of some kind. So they weren't there as individuals. They were usually there as representatives. But what we often found as the conversation began is that people would begin talking about their own personal life. The respondents in this study are anonymous. We had our list of questions, but it was very open-ended. It went in several different directions depending on who was there. There are quotes underlining their labor shortages. One respondent says, you probably noticed it. There's help wanted signs that are like bolted to the building. They back Trump administration policies, even though they produce economic hardships like job losses, closed businesses, and higher prices for manufactured items. And farmers are willing to sacrifice Trump's trade wars in the short term for what they see as long-term gains for their businesses and economic interests. As you were mentioning, the out-migration of young people and the aging population in rural areas is a real concern to a lot of communities. It's changing the social fabric, it's changing the schools, it's changing the churches. I was actually amazed at how much people were willing to talk in muted form about their concerns about their children not coming back to the community or that we're, we're really, we're not keeping, our, our kids go away to college, they don't come back, right? The study picks up on attitudes on the diversification of these small towns. One person says, it's just not the same small community that it used to be because of, you know, different cultures. And then as our kids leave and our, our children leave, and then we're being replaced by these outsiders who are coming in with, you know, their strange foods and dialects and so on. Another says immigrants are not fitting into the, quote, local community because they strained the police system and did not like the local cuisine. It was really interesting. I remember the one man who we were talking about the demographic change in the community and the, and the community response to uh, you know, racial change. And, and, uh, and this man had uh, began talking about um, his son, I think, married a Latinx woman. And, um, and that changed. It's just like, like he, 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 just the warmth that came out of him. And the, the, you could just see that he personally had reframed his thinking and had a different sort of advocacy position even um, that ran counter. daughter-in-law. Yeah, that I think ran counter to like his political position and so on. But it, it came about because of, of, of intermarriage, quite honestly. Yeah. That was in Storm Lake. Yeah. Storm yeah. Lake area. Oberhauser points out many respondents also express resentment against demographically and economically advantaged areas. You know, they refer to the Golden Dome and they refer to all the resources go to Des Moines and go to these urban areas and they don't get, um, you know, the payback or they don't get their share of the resources, which if you look at the farm and agricultural subsidies and a lot of other subsidies, there's not much truth to that. Um, but there's this, this sentiment mentality about, you know, the urbanites and the city folks and, you know, rural folks, we work, the, we work the soil, we, you know, work hard for our living, um, that came out quite a bit. And there's part of that, too, I think, is like an anti-intellectual um, sentiment. Party membership has become a core identity for people, and they have an increasingly negative feeling for the opposing party. Democrats feel really uh, negatively towards the, you know, uh, Donald Trump, Trumpism, and so on. And then, again, like, that's basically 
the framing of the MAGA movement and Trumpism is that the other party's terrible and the other people are. So just that 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 you're willing essentially. So now we've gone from a place. Well, I was this moderate place, it, and now we wing. Each what other. we're hearing more are, are are the extremes. I think on both sides, or on definitely on the Republican side, more of the extreme wing. The extremes have hijacked. They they now control the narrative. Towards the end of the interview, I ask a big picture question. So based on all the research that you've done, I want to go to a place that's devoid of all political reality. What, what an amazing world. But what advice would you give a campaign to move away from this divisive rhetoric to help for the betterment of rural communities and not just about winning an election? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think you have to speak to people's everyday lives and the struggles because people are struggling. They're living paycheck to paycheck. They're trying to find good child care for their kids. Um, you know, they're just trying to get through the, the, the crop cycle. And I think rationally, sanely speaking to those issues in a way which is not divisive, um, which maybe is impossible <laughs> because people have such strong opinions, uh, you know, would resonate and would just pe- make people feel better about the politicians in power. I have almost no advice. I... I'm, I honestly, it's so much easier to destroy something than to build something. And um, there is a destructive movement underway. It's, it's an astonishing thing to, to actually have a political party um, orienting itself around destruction. And we know how hard it is. I mean, we all have seen it in our everyday life. When you lose memory and you lose, you lose people who were um, really skilled and trained and, and uh, man, you lose that, it's really hard to get it back. This research shows how the language and framing of populism and identity movements on the political right are integrated into the political culture of rural America. Former President Trump's rhetoric gave it voice in 2016 at the highest level. And we're continuing to see it as he's running for the Republican presidential nomination again. Next time on Caucus Land. We've got to leave the chaos and the negativity and the drama behind us. A once crowded field of Republicans is shrinking in the caucuses are the former presidents to lose. If he beats, you know, the next closest candidate by 30 points, that's not a contest. Right? I mean, that's the Harlem Globetrotters. How the cycle is playing out in the run-up to the caucuses. This podcast is produced by me, Clay Masters, and John Pemble. Editorial support from Iowa Public Radio News Director Michael Leland and the NPR Midwest Newsroom's Chris Husted and Holly Edgel. Our music is composed by Garrett Schmid. Don't forget to rate and share the show. There's also a whole first season of Caucus Land from four years ago if you want more history. You can find it all at IPR.org. Caucus Land is a production of Iowa Public Radio News. You've been listening to a preview of Iowa Public Radio's podcast, Caucus Land. It's made for you to listen to with a computer, an iPhone, a smart speaker, you know, any device that can stream audio files from the internet. We only heard two of the four episodes of Caucus Land 24, or maybe you caught just a bit of it in the last hour. Now, the beauty of podcasts is you can hear them precisely when you want. You can pause them when you want. Listen to them again if you want, and you can share them with others if you want. Well, I hope that's what you want. I'm John Pemble, the co-producer of Caucus Land. 
What I'd like you to do right now is go to iowapublicradio.org or wherever you listen to podcasts and listen to the other two episodes of Caucus Land. Then subscribe, rate, and yes, share this magnificent podcast on your social media feeds or email the link to someone. Explore the world of our other podcasts from public media. Start that journey now at iowapublicradio.org. Thank you so much.